All right. If you got your Bibles, hopefully you do. First Peter chapter three. We're going to read uh, eight through uh, the end of the chapter, and this is going to be uh, kind of an interesting passage this morning. Um, I've had at least one guy uh, talk to me within the last week or so, wanting to know what I'm going to do with the last verses, um, and we're going to deal with them. They're kind of interesting. So we're going to read through this. You're going to see, if you haven't read them, you're going to see why it's interesting, and we'll try to unpack them and make some method of the madness. But let's read, starting with verse 8. Finally, all of you, have you, that's, you ever heard a sermon where somebody says finally? You've probably heard me say that, and it's really not finally because I never stop. He says finally, and there's several more chapters to go. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered by, as those who revile you, revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And this is where it gets interesting. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been submitted to him. So we'll, we'll unpack those last few verses, and, and you probably catch uh, what the issue is, what a couple of the issues are, but we'll, we'll look at those in a second. But as we move into chapter 3, the last part of chapter 3, um, this week we're dealing with uh, God's will for you, God's will for is what he wants us to do, submitting to that calling on your life to do his will. So um, one of the things that I was thinking about driving in this morning is uh, if you've been here each week, you probably think this is getting highly repetitive uh, because he, he keeps talking about doing good, doing good, doing good. Well, today he's going to talk about doing good yet again. And the only reason I sound repetitive is because he's repetitive. Uh, 
because he just keeps talking about this and it's obviously real important to him. So it's obviously supposed to be real important to us. And the more I study it and the more I think about it, talk about it, um, I think this issue of conduct and behavior is probably one of the, the key issues in the church today that we struggle with, how we live our lives. And it's, I had a talk with Bill Egner, our executive pastor yesterday, and some of the pastors in our church went to a conference up at Tim Keller's church in New York City. And one of the things they talked about was uh, the church should be about uh, teaching their people faith and works, where faith and work intersects, your life at, in the workplace. And really, it's, a, it's, it's talking about discipleship. It's talking about living your life amongst lost people and making a difference, which is exactly what Peter's talking about. And, and I think this issue of our behavior, while somewhat repetitive uh, as we go through this, this book, is really important for us to hear, but not only hear, to apply. How do we live out our lives? How do we live differently? So he's, again today, going to talk about how to do good. And he, he addresses, uh, in verse 8, all of you. So he's been talking to wives. He's been talking to husbands. He's been talking to uh, submitting to your boss. He's, now he's getting specific talking to Christians in general, and he's saying, okay, Christians, all of you, every one of you, husbands, wives, employers, employees, uh, anyone who knows Jesus Christ, that's who he's talking to. And so he's talking to us. So as he says this, finally, all of you, everybody listen. So if you happen to not be married and that doesn't apply to you, or you happen to not be a woman and that doesn't apply to you, well, now this does apply to you. So what he has to say to us this morning applies to every one of us in the room who happen to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it still has to do with this topic of doing good. Remember he said in chapter two, this is God's will that you do good. Paul said, this is God's will, your holiness. Holiness and doing good go hand in hand. You cannot claim to be holy and not be doing good, living holy. Uh, it's godliness lived out in everyday life. So, you know, if you, if you wanted to give me a definition of what you think a holy person looks like or a godly person, and you said, well, they, they read their Bible every day, and they go to Bible study, and they attend church, and they tithe, and they memorize scripture, and they're knowledgeable about the things of God, my pushback would be, well, what are they like when you're not around? How do they manage their family? How do they react to their kids? What do they do when they're under stress? That's godliness. It's, it's how we live our lives. It's taking the scriptures and having a lot of knowledge of scripture is great, but if the scripture doesn't impact the way you live your life, then it's just knowledge. It, it's not changing the way you live. So again, doing good is still the issue. Conduct is the issue that he's dealing with. How do you behave? How do you live your life? So if you remember in chapter 2, verse 12, he said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, live your life in such a way that it brings honor and glory to God, and they can't really find a reason to ridicule you. Doesn't mean they won't. It doesn't mean they won't persecute you, call you a hypocrite, but you do the best in your ability to live honorably. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, among the lost. And then he says in verse 15, this is God's will that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Those people who would 
say harsh things about you, against you, attack you for your faith. You just, you do good. And again, what's Peter's definition of doing good? Doing the will of God, what God would have you do. So we've, we've hit this over and over again. And yet he says in verse 20 and 21, if when you do good, do what God has called you to do, wherever you are, workplace, home, and you suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So in other words, if you do what God's called you to do in the workplace, the marketplace, and you may get grief for that, or you may get people who think, well, who do you think you are? You're holier than thou. Why do you think you're better than me? And all you're trying to do is live godly. If you suffer for it and you endure, God sees that as gracious. That's good. You're doing what I called you to do. For to this, he says, you have been called. Called to what? Called to suffer for doing good. See, it's going to come. It's going to happen. And he'll elaborate that on that in just a minute. But we sometimes don't think about the fact that when I do good and I do God's will, it will not always go well for me. I'll get pushback. I'll get ridicule. I'll have harsh treatment come from that. And really it depends on where you are and the environment that you're in and the kind of people you hang with. But for some of us, it'll be harder than others. You may work for a boss who's totally against Christianity and totally against you living out your Christianity and your faith. Don't talk about it. Don't bring your Bible to work. But you may be in an environment where it's less harsh, but either way, you may suffer and probably will suffer for doing what God has called you to do. Why? Because we live in a lost world, a fallen world. But again, he's talking to every one of us and he says, here's what doing good looks like. And he's going to get very specific. So in verse 8, here's what he says. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So he gives us five things. And if we're not careful, we'll blow right past verse 8 because we've heard these, these phrases so many times in our lives, they don't mean anything anymore. And yet he's telling you and I, if you want to do what God would have you do, these five things should be part of your life. And then he goes on and says, do not repay evil for evil and don't revile when you're reviled. So do these five things, have these five things characteristic about you, but don't do these two things. So he's getting very specific. Well, let's take a look at those. Five characteristics that should represent your life and my life as a believer, living our lives in the midst of a fallen world. First one, unity of mind. What, what in the world does that mean? It basically means cooperation in spite of differences. Now, I think at this point, Paul is talk, or Peter is talking to believers, and, and while he's still talking about living out in the world, he's also talking about living amongst other believers. Because let's face it, sometimes it's hard to do these things even among people who believe like we believe, right? It's, it's definitely difficult having these five characteristics among the lost, but our problem is we have a hard time just doing it among other believers. So he says, have unity of mind. When, you, when you're around other believers, we need to be unified. It's this idea of cooperating, having a common cause, even though we don't always agree. And, you know, it's interesting as we, as we uh, get further and deeper into this political season and you interface with other believers who maybe, maybe don't see the election and the candidates the way you see the election and the candidates and maybe aren't going to vote for the person you're going to probably vote for, and yet you're both believers and you find yourself at odds and arguing and 
really confrontational, what he would say is have unity of mind. Cooperate. Cooperate in what? Cooperate in this thing called the Christian life and the cause of Christ, even though you don't agree on everything. There are people, I was sharing with a couple of the guys this morning, there are people who don't always agree with me. I know you find that hard to believe. Uh, don't always agree with how I interpret a passage or my views on different things, and, and that's the reality of life, isn't it? It's the reality. If you're going to teach, not everybody's going to agree with you. Um, but yet we need to be common in our cause, and we need to cooperate in spite of our differences. Um, and I think if the church was better at this, we would be more influential. But we tend to not have unity of mind. We, we get divided. That's why Jesus prayed in the garden, what? I pray that they might be one as we are one. Unity of mind. Harmony. How about sympathy? What's sympathy? Here's what sympathy is not, just feeling sorry for somebody. That's not what he's talking about. I feel sorry for a lot of people. You know, you just look at them and go, man, that sucks to be you. You know, I'm glad I'm not you. That is not what he's talking about, okay? This is what this word means. Empathy, in other words, I feel your pain. I get what you're going through, but I'm going to do something about it. See, I don't need your sympathy. You know, sympathy does me no good. Because sympathy is basically you feeling sorry for somebody, but just going, man, sorry. And then you walk away. It's what James talks about in chapter 2. You know, you see somebody and say, well, man, be warm and be filled. And you walk away and you do nothing to meet their need. That is sympathy, but it's not empathy. You really don't understand what's going on. So he tells you and I, if we're going to live in this world and do good, we're going to have empathy for one another. And it means I'm going to be willing to step into your life and put my empathy into action. And sometimes that's going to get messy. But see, that's doing good. The world doesn't do that. The world may show sympathy, but it very rarely shows empathy that's put into action, really doing something about it. How about brotherly love? That's a term we, we use pretty frequently. It means it's a fraternal, it's, it's literally from the, the word Philadelphia where it talks about brotherly love, loving your brother. And it's a fraternal, inseparable love. It's a love that two human brothers, blood brothers should have, but also that we should have as believers in Jesus Christ. We should love one another deeply and, and nothing can separate us. I have two brothers, two older brothers. Uh, there have been plenty of times in our life lives together where um, we didn't always like each other. As a matter of fact, I shared a room with both of them at one point, and uh, they, they put masking tape down the center of the room. They had bunk beds on one side, and my bed was on the other, and I was not allowed to cross the room. The <laughs> problem was the bathroom was on their side, so I had to go use my parents' bathroom. Um, we didn't always get along, but we're still brothers. And we don't always agree, but we're brothers, and nothing will ever change that. They're, they're always going to be my blood brothers. And that's the attitude you and I should have. We're not always going to agree. We're not always going to get along, but we should have a brotherly love. You are my brother in Christ. You're going to hurt me. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to disappoint you. You're going to disappoint me, but we're inseparable. And then he says, have a tender heart. Now, for some of us in the room, this is really hard, a tender heart. Here's what it means. Willing and able to show compassion. And I, I've told you guys a hundred times, I have very little compassion. Um, God put me together with a woman who is just, she oozes compassion. 
and she, she definitely balances me out because I really struggle showing compassion. I, I just, I don't get it. I don't feel it. I, I, like, I like having it shown to me, but I don't do a good job of showing it to others. But he says, this is doing good when you show compassion. You have a tender heart for those around you and what they're going through. And you're willing to show it. Not stiff arm people and go, I don't want to hear your problems. You know, so many times you've had this happen to you where somebody says, you know, hey, how are you doing? And you know your response is supposed to be what? I'm fine. But you really aren't. And, and you, you really want to say, my life sucks right now. But you know what's going to happen if you say that, right? Their eyes are going to roll back in their head and they're going to turn around and walk away because they really don't want to know. That's not compassion. Compassion is if, you're, if you come into somebody's influence and they say, how are you doing? And you say, how much time do you have? They don't turn and run. They go, I got all the time in the world. What, what's going on? Tell me. And you share and they listen and they care. See, that's, that's doing good. And it all kind of, I think, hinges on this last one that we're to have a humble mind. And that basically means seeing others as more important than yourself. See, if you ask somebody how they're doing and they start to tell you how they're doing and how they're doing is not very well, and you look at your watch, what do you basically just told that person? I don't have time for you. You are not that important to me. And your story is most certainly not important to me. So either hurry it up or I got to go. I didn't mean for you to tell me. I just was asking. You were supposed to say, I'm fine. But see, that's not a humble mind. A humble mind is everybody's more important than me. You're more important than me. My kids are more important than me. My wife's more important than me. My boss is more important than me. Their problems are more important than my problems. And if you look at this list of five characteristics, they all run counter to what the world would tell you. Because the world would say, no, it's all about you. It's all about your needs. You don't need to show compassion. You should expect compassion. You shouldn't you don't have to agree with everybody. You don't have to have unity of mind. As a matter of fact, we all have our own opinion. And what's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. And, but see, when we do good, when we live this way, it affects those around us. And especially as the body of Christ lives this way, people look from the outside in and they go, what is, what is up with that? Why is that family that way? Why is that church that way? Why is this group of men this way? See, that's when we start to impact the world around us, when we live together with these characteristics. And then he says, do not repay evil for evil. Where does that come from? Where does that mentality come from? It, it comes from the world. It comes from the enemy. If somebody does something to you, what do you immediately think to do to them? The same thing two times over. You screw me, I'm going to screw you worse. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You cause me pain you better watch out. That's what the world tells us because that, that's normally what flows up through me. It's the natural response, right? You do evil to me. You cut in front of me. Guess what I'm going to do to you? I'm going to speed up and get in front of you and cut you off and then slow down. I'll teach you. See, that's, that's the natural human response. And don't revile when you're reviled. Don't give back what you're given 
That's not the way of Christ. That's not the way. As a matter of fact, he says, this is not what Jesus did. It's not how he lived. He says in verse 23, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. When Jesus was beaten, he didn't, he didn't call down angels and say, who do you, just who do you think you are? I'm the son of God. I made you. And you're going to whip me? You're going to spit on me? Man, if, if I had been Jesus, all of those people would have been toast. I mean, for, for, I've probably told you guys a story before, but when I was in junior high school, I grew up in New York. It's not a very friendly place. And my best friend and I, Jimmy Minio, that was his name, we're walking home from school. We were both about this tall in junior high school, very small, walk, and we had to walk by the high school. So we're walking by the high school, and there's three high school guys coming towards us. They're like giants. And I, I, I was smart enough to know don't give them my contact, give them the sidewalk, just don't get in trouble. So we're walking along. I'm staring at the sidewalk. Jimmy's kind of a cocky kid for his size, and, and uh, they walk up to us, and they stop him first, and they said, do you have any money? And Jimmy goes, I don't have any money, and he takes off. And I'm still standing there. I'm like frozen in my tracks. And they said, hey, you got any money? And I'm like, I start checking my pockets. I don't have any money. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Let me check. You know, I'm checking on my pockets, and, and I, don't know. I don't have any money. And, they, and all three of them start spitting on me. And they spat on me until they ran out of spit. I mean, it was just like spit, spit, spit's flying. I'm just drenched in spit. And they finally got just dry. And they walked off laughing. And, everything. and I was just like, and there's Jimmy about 200 yards ahead just watching. And I go home, and I'm, I'm so angry. But there's not a thing I can do about it. I was angry at him because he left me. But Jimmy was smart enough to know, don't hang around, just take off. I wasn't that smart. If I had been Jesus, guess what I'd have done to those three guys? They'd have been toast. And yet Jesus, hung on the cross, was beaten, stabbed in the side, ridiculed, reviled, and what did he do in return? He didn't revile. He didn't react. He didn't respond. He submitted. See, that's not the way the world teaches you and I. And yet that is what Peter's trying to get across. He says, no, instead, don't revile. Don't pay back evil for evil. He says, no, on the contrary, bless. Bless. Now, if you've got a brain cell in your brain, you look at that and go, really? Bless? When somebody hurts me, somebody harms me. Not only that, what did he say? You were called to do this. Jesus Christ called you to himself into a relationship with him so that you could be made right with God so that you might bless those around you. Believers and non-believers, bless. And yet that is not what we're told as we live out our lives, as we do business in the marketplace. And yet doing good and blessing is part of our calling. It's what God has called us to do. And it comes from belonging to God. I am a child of God. I'm an heir. You're a chosen race. Chapter 2, verse 9. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's own possession. Live like it. And part of living like it is to bless those around you. Now, I know you can give me all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't and why they don't deserve it. But isn't it interesting that 
we love the fact that we got blessed by God through Jesus Christ while we were yet sinners. We didn't deserve it. And he's just calling us to do the same thing. Bless those around you whether they deserve it or not. Bless. Don't revile. Don't pay back. Bless. And you will be blessed. And we'll find out what that means in just a second. You know, he goes on and says in verse 9, that you may, may proclaim the excellencies of him who? God. So as you bless, as you do what God would have you do, you're actually proclaiming the excellencies of God. That word is, in the Greek, it, it's, it's a word where we get angels. It, it's a messenger. It's a proclaimer. It's somebody who has good news to proclaim. But I think it means far more than just words flowing out of your mouth. It's actually living in such a way that your life proclaims the excellencies of God. Because what have what these two chapters been all about? Conduct, behavior. It's you living in such a way that you proclaim his excellencies by living out those five characteristics. Humility of mind, unity, sympathy. See, we make God great through our lives, the way we live them. Not just through our words, but how we live. That's what attracts people. They will know we are his disciples by what? Our love for one another. Not our words. Are words important? Yes. But sometimes words are cheap because actions really do speak louder than words. Your kids watch you more than they listen to you. If you haven't discovered that yet, we need to talk. You can speak to your kids to your blue in the face, but they will always watch your actions more than they hear your words. So how do you live your life? How do you emulate Christ's likeness in front of them? How, what do you model before them? They watch you, and what they see you do registers inside. You know, I've, I've told you before, my wife uh, for years has told me, and now that I have grandkids, she's probably going to start up again, what parents do in moderation, children do to excess. What does that mean? That means stop doing what you're doing because you're a bad influence. That's what she, you know, if I said something sarcastic, she said, you know, honey, what parents do in moderation, children do to excess. If I did something that she didn't like, you know, honey, what parents do in moderation, children do to excess. She's telling me that my actions have influence over, on my children, and they do. And I can see it in every one of my kids. The problem is they picked up all my bad characteristics. Um, maybe I didn't have any good ones. I don't know. But our actions do speak louder than our words. So he says, bless. And he, he picks uh, from Psalm chapter 34, and he plants it in the middle of this passage. And, and listen to what it says. This is from the Net Bible. Do you want to really live? Would you love to live a long and happy life? What's the answer to that? Yeah, you bet. Then make sure you don't speak evil words or use deceptive speech. Oh, that's the key. Well, that's, that stinks. Turn away from evil. Do what is right. Strive for peace and promote it. The Lord pays attention to the godly and hears their cry for help, but the Lord opposes evildoers and wipes out all memory of them from the earth. Isn't it interesting that he took Psalm 34 and he plants it in the middle of this whole section on doing good, living godly, righteously in the midst of ungodliness. Who are the godly? Well, in the Hebrew, it's those who are righteous in their conduct and their behavior, their character. They do good. That's us. Should be. 
Who are the ungodly? Who are the evildoers? In the Hebrew, it's those who produce evil or wickedness. It is their nature to produce evil or wickedness, those who do wrong. So what's he saying? Do good and you will be blessed. Do evil and you won't be. It's pretty clear that we have been called to live differently in this world. So 1 Peter 3, 13 through 15, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Well, my answer to that is plenty of people. There's a lot of people that want to harm me or think less of me or maybe not give me the raise I thought I wanted because they don't agree with me or they don't like the way I live my life. But he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. He said this several times now. What's his point? Do good, you will be blessed. Worry about what God thinks instead of what the people around you thinks. Do what God would have you do and he will bless you. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Do what Christ, what God would have you do and wait for his blessing. You don't know what it's going to be. You don't know what it's going to come. You don't know the exact nature of it, but you can trust him. Just wait, do good and he will bless. Always being prepared, he goes on, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This verse is really kind of interesting because uh, I think it's one of those verses we lift out of its context and make it mean something other than what it really means. And, and I'll explain what I'm talking about. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What's the point of this passage? Well, it seems to be about make a defense. That word is apologia. It means a defense, an answer, and it's where we get apologetics. Apologetics is the defense of the faith. There are some guys in the room who love apologetics. I'm convinced that people who love apologetics, who love to argue the faith, are type D personalities who just like to argue. They, they love debates. I don't like to debate. Uh, but there are certain people who are wired and they love apologetics. Apologetics is legitimate that we do need to know how to defend our faith. If somebody says, well, I don't believe there's a God, we need to be able to say, well, let me, let me walk you through why I think there is a God. Um, I don't think Jesus really lived. I don't believe in the resurrection. We need to be able to articulate why we believe in the resurrection. That's apologetics. But I think this passage is really not just talking about verbal apologetics, it's living your life in such a way that your life is an apologetic. It is a proof of what you say you believe. See, people can always argue with your words, but they can't argue with your life. You can say you have faith and argue about faith and define faith, but if you live by faith, it's really hard for them to argue with that. If you trust God, it's really hard for them to argue with that. So this, I think, because of the nature of the context has to do with what? Behavior. That it's your behavior that is the best apologetic for the faith, how you live your life. Because think about it. You have a sin nature, just like the person who doesn't know Christ. Why is it you can live differently with a sin nature and they can't? Because you have Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. You have the brotherhood of other believers. So it's our good behavior. The message says it this way, be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you're living. What's the point? When people watch you live your life, they should be able to walk up to you and go, 
man, I don't, I, don't, I don't get it. You have so much peace right now when everybody else is twisted off. You have so much joy in the midst of what seems to be some really significant sorrow. I've, I've, I've enjoyed watching Logan um, as he and his family have gone through this really tough trial with his brother Austin who um, broke his neck and who's paralyzed from the chest down. And um, that's tough. And yet I've watched Logan and Jordan and their family rally around their brother. And as a matter of fact, his brother is going to be moving into his home. And they're going to care for him. And his mother is going to move into their home. I don't know which is worse, uh, having your, your mother come live with you. Um, but just watching his faith in the midst of some really difficult stuff. And I'm, I guarantee there are people watching him. And people are going, how in the world could you do that? How in the world could you take on your brother who's got such incredible needs and it's going to change your lifestyle? It's going to change everything about your relationship with your wife. And why is Logan doing that? Because Logan's a super saint? No, because he knows it's the right thing to do. It's the godly thing to do. It's what most of us in this room would do. But people on the outside would look at that and go, I don't get it. Your life speaks volumes and people are going to want to know why do you do what you do? Why do you behave the way you behave? And you need to be able to tell them it's because of Jesus Christ. It's because of what he's done in my life. Be ready to tell people what drives your conduct. You want to know why I have peace? Because of Jesus Christ. You want to know why I have joy? Because of Jesus Christ. You don't want to know why my wife and I are still deeply in love after 38 years of marriage? It's because of Jesus Christ. It's not because I'm special or she's special. It's because of Jesus Christ. You want to, if people come and say, why does your family seem to love one another so much? It's because of Jesus Christ. What attracts them is your behavior. That's what should attract them. And then you can tell them and defend why you live the way you live. And it's because of the hope that is in you. And the hope that is in you should what? Flow out of you. That's what people are seeing. It's you living out your hope that I have a God. I have a Savior who loves me. I have my sins forgiven. I have a home reserved for me in heaven. I, I'm not hopeless. I'm not going to panic with the election. I'm not going to get angry and, and vindictive. And you know what? I'm going to live differently. My hope is going to flow out. And people are going to see it, and they're going to say, why do you have hope? And then he tells us, I would rather see you suffer for doing good than anything else if it's God's will. And you know what, guys? Here's what I know. Logan and Jordan are going to suffer. Taking on his brother, paralyzed from the chest down, they're going to suffer physically, they're going to work hard. They're going to sacrifice. They're going to give up their privacy. It's, there's going to be some suffering involved, but I would rather see you suffer for doing good than anything else because what? You're going to grow from that. It's God's will. Doing good is God's will. So is suffering. Suffering may be part of God's will for your life. Why? Because he wants to grow you. And here's what I can tell you. When godliness starts to flow out of you, guess who's going to stand against you? The enemy. I guarantee it. So don't be surprised if you start taking some of this and apply it to your life and things get tough. Work gets tough. Relationships get tough. Because the enemy hates the fact that you want to live godly and do what God would have you do. It comes part and parcel. And God's going to use that in your life. I love Romans 5. When we can rejoice 
we can rejoice, listen to this, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. We can rejoice in trials because they actually make us stronger. They make us more dependent. And then he uses Jesus Christ as an example. Christ suffered. He died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. He is the example of the kind of godly life we're to live. And here's what you need to understand about this. He suffered, why? For you, for me. And if we suffer for doing good, guess what? God has a reason. Did God have a reason for Jesus Christ suffering? You bet. Salvation, redemption. He was God. Okay, get this through your head. Jesus Christ was God. Everything he did was good and godly. He was completely righteous without sin. So you talk about holiness, godliness, righteousness. He lived it. Everything he did. And yet he suffered. He suffered for what? Doing exactly what God told him to do. And yet we struggle with, well, I, I did what I was supposed to do and now I'm suffering for it. That's not fair. No, you will suffer for doing good because the world can't stand it. Just like they, they hated him, Jesus says, they're going to hate you. Why? Because you're doing God's will. You're living for him. First Peter, he goes on and says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, live to righteousness by his wounds, his suffering, you have been healed. He blessed. So what are we supposed to do? Bless. Suffer for doing good. We won't always be understood. We won't always be appreciated, but we're to do good. So now let's talk about these really weird verses real quickly. I'm not gonna, hopefully not spend a whole lot of time on this, but these are really kind of interesting. And there's at least two guys in the room I know who want to know what they mean. And the rest of us don't care. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What in the world is Peter talking about? Now, here's what's really fascinating to me. I've read so many commentaries on these verses. And here's what I can tell you. Nobody knows what he's talking about. Everybody has an opinion about what he's talking about. But until we get to heaven and sit down with Peter and go, what in the world were you talking about? And why did you put these verses in here? We really don't know. I'm going to tell you what I think he's talking about. Okay. And, and I'm, I'm not a theologian, but I'm just going to try to understand it based on what he's already said, the context. What does he mean? Made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Well, not only that is an issue, but it gets worse. Then he starts talking about baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. What? Baptism saves me? I didn't think baptism saves me. What's he talking about? Is he, is he teaching that baptism saves? Well, here's, here's the issue. Did Jesus Christ go to hell? There are those who believe from this passage that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, descended into hell and then went to heaven. And they, they base it off this passage. If he did, when and why? Why did he do that? What's the basis for it? Is he telling us that baptism saves? We believe as a church that baptism doesn't save. Baptism is a post-salvation experience. It's something you do in obedience to the command of God, but it doesn't save you. There are denominations who believe, based on this verse and others, that it does save you. Well, what's he saying? Here's the deal. If you're Anytime you study scripture, it's always context, right? Context, context, context. Verse 18, he says, for Christ also. So Christ is the connecting point, and it links these verses, 18 through 22, to the previous verses. 
for Christ also. Over and over he said, likewise, likewise. Now he says, for Christ also. The context is what we've just been talking about, suffering for doing good, right? And he's using Jesus Christ's suffering as an example. So what's his point? He suffered for our sins. He suffered on the cross, died in our place so that we might be made righteous. He suffered. He died. Why? That he might bring us to God. Okay? What made that possible? His death and resurrection. So when he talks about he died in the flesh and he was made alive in the spirit, what is that talking about? His death and resurrection. Okay? He was put to death but made alive. What's the context? Suffering of Christ. What did he suffer for? Your salvation. How did he suffer? He was, he was killed, but he was brought back to life. So keep the context. So when he talks about in the spirit, I believe he's talking about his resurrected state. When Paul met Jesus on the road, he met Jesus in his resurrected state. When Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to the disciples and and over 500 people in his resurrected state. He was able to go through walls. He was able to um, perform things that, that were not capable by him in his physical human body. He was now in his resurrected body. Still recognizable, still had the nail scars in his hands and his feet, but it was a new resurrected body. I think that's what this is talking about. He no longer had the same human body he had before. He could no longer be put to death because he no longer had that human body. He had been resurrected. We will one day get a new body, a resurrected body. It will be different, not like this. I don't know what it's like, but it'll be different. That's what he's talking about. So he's talking about the the same state he had before he took on humanity, his pre-incarnate state. In the Old Testament, there are many um, occurrences of Jesus appearing. It's called a theophany. It's Jesus appearing, showing himself to different Old Testament saints in his pre-incarnate form as Jesus, the Son of God. That's the state he's returned to. And I think that's what he's talking about when he says in the spirit. It's the same state he had in the Old Testament when he appeared to the saints. So he says, in that state, that resurrected state in which he went and in so doing proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, here's the key, I think, to understanding this. Where did he go? It says in which he went. Where did he go? I think where he went is taken care of in verse 21 and 22, who has gone into heaven. Where did Jesus go when he died? Hell? I don't think so. What did he tell the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. So it tells me that he went to glory. He went to heaven. Peter says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, that's where he went. Well, what does it mean he proclaimed to the spirits in prison? Keep the context. What's the context? He died. He suffered. He rose again. And that activity of rising again in his new resurrected state proclaims to the prisoners, those who are in hell, those who have rejected God's message over the centuries, are hearing that it was all true. The gospel is true. He is the son of God. God is God. There is a God. 
So it's his resurrection and ascension that proclaim the excellencies of God, just like we read earlier. That activity, that action, when he rose from the dead and ascended back up into heaven just days later, preaches to and continues to preach to all those who over the years have rejected the grace of God. And he uses the days of Noah as, as an example. He says, those who, the spirits in prison he's talking about, are those who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through. Salvation was offered in the sense that Noah was building this huge ark and not a single person was interested. Matter of fact, what did they, what did they do? They, they ridiculed him. I can't believe you're building this thing. I don't even know what it is. Why are you doing this? And not one of them bought into the idea that a flood was coming, an ark was needed, and salvation was available, and they all died as a result, except for Noah and his family. See, that ascension of Jesus Christ, resurrection and ascension, proclaims to everyone over the centuries who's rejected the salvation of God, the grace of God, that he is who he says he is. It preaches the gospel to them. But it's too late, right? Those people in prison are never going to get out of prison. Those people who are condemned to hell will never get out of hell because they rejected the message. They never listened. Just like in the days of Noah. Noah and his family were saved. They were literally immersed in water. They were stuck in a boat in the middle of water, but they were protected from the waters. They were brought safely through the water, he says. That's their form of salvation. And he says, this, this is the last part, baptism, which corresponds to Noah being saved, through water, now saves you. Not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection, there it is again, resurrection of Jesus Christ. The water did not save Noah, right? God did. Matter of fact, the water killed everybody but Noah and his family. So the water didn't save him. God did. Baptism doesn't save you. God does. Baptism is, an, is something we do as obedience to God. And he says in verse 21, baptism is a response to God from a clean conscience that he has saved you, redeemed you, and we respond by following Christ in the example of baptism as an outward expression of what God has done inwardly. That's what I really think these verses are talking about. Baptism is a response. It's an act of allegiance. It's an outward indication of what God has done to change us on the inside. It does not save, and that's not what Peter is talking about. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. So back in the days of Noah, belief is the key to salvation. It's still the key today. Noah had to believe that building the boat was going to save him, getting in the boat was going to save him, and that God was going to protect him, and it did save him. Baptism does not save. And this is what has been proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Complicated verses, confusing verses, but hopefully that, that helps. And there will probably be more than a handful of guys who don't agree with me. But remember, we're to have unity of mind. We can disagree, but we're going to be unified. Here's your questions. Why would proclaiming the excellencies of God through our good deeds, including following Christ in baptism, be so important? See, there's some guys in the room who've never been baptized, or maybe you were sprinkled, dipped, dunked somewhere along the way, but you weren't in Christ. You've come to know Christ, but you've never been baptized. Why would doing that proclaim the excellencies of God to those around you? Second question, in what ways do you think we are blessed by God when we bless others, even when we suffer for it? What does that look like? 
Maybe you have an example from your own life. Then finally, if it is God's will that you do good, what prevents you from doing it? I think it's pretty clear it's God's will, so why don't you? And what's the greatest barrier in your life to doing what God would have you do? Be honest. Be specific. Here's what I know. If you're honest, at least one other guy at the table is going to have the same issue you do and may be afraid to bring it up. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these guys. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Peter. Thank you for uh, placing this on his heart through the Holy Spirit to write it, put it in on, on paper that we might read it centuries later and still apply it to our lives. Father, you want us to live according to your will. You want us to do good. You want us to live godly lives, righteous life, holy lives. You want the character of our lives to emulate the character of Jesus Christ who suffered on our behalf and was blessed for it. And as a result of that, we've been blessed because of him. Lord, show us what that looks like. Show us how to bless those around us, our kids, our wives, our friends, our coworkers, even if we don't want to, even if we feel like it doesn't make sense, that we would just do what you tell us to do and watch you work. Thank you for these men. Thank you for their faithfulness. And I pray your blessings on them. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Y'all have fun.